Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have a special guest. Let's tune in. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Adrian Van Vactor to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send your questions to us, feel free to do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questions, F-O-R, hope, at gmail.com. If you'd like uh, spelling of the other two words conjoined with that email address, you can join us on any one of our social media platforms. The one we most recommend is our website because, of course, uh, it was in capable hands it was designed. But noting that point as well, if you want to join us face-to-face, on the right-hand side of the screen, we'll have a comment section to receive your questions. And at the bottom of the screen, we'll have the email address spelled out for you. You can take advantage of that at any time. Note that we will also be counting down to the next broadcast if you tend to click on it at any other time than 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. You'll also be able to listen to previous broadcasts as well. Our Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. However, if even if you subscribe or give us a like there. If you aren't notified or if they take down our content like they are at the moment, uh, you can still join us on our website. We encourage you to join us even if they make it harder. We are looking forward to receiving your Bible questions. Just note the only standards for the questions are that they are A, questions, B, sincere, meaning you want to hear the answer, and C, about the Bible, not just in the question, but also in the answer. If you can meet that criteria, then we will gladly give you an answer, but note as well, nothing we have to say is really worth anything unless the Lord equips us to do it. So, uh, Adrian, want to start us off in a word of prayer, see where the Lord takes us? Yes. Father, I thank you for the privilege of knowing you and having the truth of your word to guide us and everything we need in this life. So we ask that you'd give us wisdom today as we field questions for, uh, from those who want to know more about the Bible or have questions about what it means. So we ask that you would be with us and guide our thoughts and our words in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, uh, we ended the broadcast yesterday. By the way, I have to say, I have a hard time saying amen now because every night when I pray with my two-and-a-half-year-old and I go, amen, he just... Every night he goes, amen. So now I just want to <laughs> say it that way, but uh, it's adorable. I just had to throw that in there because it's been kind of a treat every night. Yes, proud father of three boys, two of which were the two-for-one sale. So <laughs> we can uh, appreciate the sentiments, yeah. and I'm sure many stories to come. But uh, note, that's what that word means, amen. That is true. You're affirming what's being said. Hopefully in maybe two years he can le- grasp that too. So, Oh, if he hangs around me, he'll know it for sure. But with that <laughs> being said, uh, we ended yesterday's broadcast with a brief mention of something that's going to come up more and more, so we figure we may as well stay ahead of the curve before it even becomes that month, let alone time of year, because, let's be honest, the commercials aren't waiting for us. The topic of Halloween is always a controversial one among Christian circles, and the question itself was very aptly worded, is Halloween satanic? And obviously, there are two parts to that question. Is Halloween satanic, but also is anything satanic? How do we know the difference and what to avoid and why? So starting off with the fundamentals, we want to give you a brief historical overview of the traditions surrounding Halloween 
as it's practiced today that'll hopefully give all of you listening a more informed perspective compared to the hype that internet Karens are giving it right now. So starting off with some of the accusations, I'm sure you have all heard at one time or another that Halloween is taken from the ancient pagan festival known as Samhain. It's spelt Samhain, but it's pronounced Samhain because the Celts don't like to follow rules. And what's interesting (laughs) as well is that they would claim this is a festival celebrating the dead, that the Druids, the oak seers literally, that would host these pagan festivals as their priests would dress up in animal skins or as monsters and so forth and try to ward off evil spirits and then it centers around this whole idea that we adapted it into our uh, culture I guess here in America and that if we want to be Christians we want to be salt and light we should avoid pagan festivals. What's a little closer to the truth is it's also associated with Dios de los Muertos. Now Adrian you come from a Hispanic background could you translate that? Day of the Dead. All right, so that celebration, that festival remembering the dead, and that's essentially what it's all about. But what people uh, tend to forget, firstly about Norse pagan history, as well as pagan history in general, but also of that history, church history, and what founded those sort of deals is that they don't actually say how they're described online. Now, of course, we are also online, and it would be fully ironic for me to say online. Don't hear everything you see online. Look this stuff up and verify it. We want to make sure that you're as informed in your own mind as well as from us. Don't trust us because we're saying it. Trust us because the information actually backs up with the facts. When it talks about the Day of the Dead, it was a Hispanic and also a European uh, iteration of a series of believe it or not, of holidays that were actually moved because of popular vote, and none of them had any association with paganism whatsoever. When the celebration of martyrs, those had given their lives for the faith throughout history, a day of remembrance was set aside for them on the western side of Europe, and southwestern as well, around May 13th concerning the Day of Martyrs. And that was pretty much the case until, as Christianity permeated the Roman Empire, Germanic and Celtic countries, that is more northeastern, or uh, yeah, uh, northwestern uh, sections of Europe, were also getting in on the celebration. And since winters there are a lot more harsh, they wanted to include every excuse to celebrate these things. And instead of a pagan association, it was actually a Catholic tradition. They wanted to celebrate it on November 1st, and Pope Gregory III officially set that as the rule and standard. Now, again, it varies. In Ireland, it was April 20th. In most sections of the early Roman Empire, it was May 13th. In Germanic countries, it was November 1st. But all of these festivals were, again, not in any way associated with Samhain. It was a remembrance of those not who had died, but given their lives specifically. Now, obviously, there's really just a a demarcation of changing of seasons. Yeah, and that's all that we know about Samhain. And there there was a spiritual thinking behind it, but it wasn't like what we think of, you know, All Witches Day or whatever they 
also yeah. called it. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll get more into the pagan aspect here in a minute. But when we're talking about the Roman Catholic tradition, understand that's the foundation of all of this. They had a martyr day. But note, there's three kinds of people in the world. People who give their lives to the faith, people who just lose their lives with faith, and people who lose their lives without faith. And so they decided to expand on this a little bit. There was, of course, November 2nd. It also went as far as November 6th, but it depended on mm -hmm. what time of the year. That's the Dios de los Muertos has a different iteration every year. But also note, the souls that had died not as martyrs or had been canonized as saints, according to the Roman Catholic tradition, but those who had just died, people who were in purgatory as they understood it, would be celebrated on November 2nd. And then you have to ask, well, what about those who aren't <laughs> in the category of believers or all condemned day, if you want to refer to it as that. And that is when October 31st came into the mix. Now, obviously in a remembrance of the dead, Catholics are going to be Catholics, Romans are going to be Romans, they're going to do what they are going to do. Note that none of this yet has any association with paganism. It is simply a remembrance of those who have physically died in any category, and they're taking these days to remember them. The reason it was introduced at the turn of the seasons was convenience, because a lot of the Christians at the time of the Middle Ages were, of course, in more Germanic countries, not in the countries that were celebrating it closer to Easter, or Pasher, as they called it, Passover. It was simply for convenience sake. We have no documentation that in order to accommodate the pagans, the Jesuits introduced this idea nothing could be further from the truth. We need actual documentation, and this is what we have. But building on that point, we look at Halloween today, and we see practices that don't involve a lot of remembrance of the dead. <clears throat> In fact, that's hardly the thing that's on anyone's mind when it comes to Halloween today. So where did the dressing up and where did the giving of candy come from, as well as the uh, underlying tone of TPing your neighbor's house if they don't give you good treats or something, you know? Not speaking pumpkins, from experience pumpkin at all. Sma pumpkin smashing. And yeah, that, that whole idea. Well, obviously, there's the association with the turnips, but that is jumping the gun a little bit. We're asking, what about the actual practices that are foundational here? And the closer we get to Halloween, we'll repeat this point, go into more details about certain things and less about others. But here's the point. The practices have two main historical events associated with them. We've talked about All Saints Day as far as the date on the calendar. It would fit in that general time frame. But what about the um, dressing up? Well, that actually was the English's fault. And I know that today the English people have our sympathies upon the uh, glorification of Queen Elizabeth, but, well, let the joke still hang in the air for that to be enjoyed. The British uh, essentially had a failed attempt at their parliament being burned to the ground by a man by the name of Guy Fawkes. And Guy Fawkes, he was generally associated with the modern-day film V for Vendetta. The main hero is a, a vague word, but uh, the mask that the main character played mm -hmm. by Hugo Weaving is wearing is the Guy Fawkes mask. And the I guess, uh, slogan that is associated with him is remember the remember the 5th of November. That was Guy Fawkes Day. And so in the week leading up to it, including but not limited to October 31st, remember, November 5th as the objective. People would pull pranks, vandalize houses, and kids would wear his mask in, honoration, in honoring and remembering this Catholic revolutionary, if you were a part of that group. When people in England, 
came over to the new world in the United States, what was becoming the United States, they brought their traditions with them. Now, masks, I can note the association, and the pranks I can associate, but we're not quite there yet as far as explaining the whole story. Because note as well, just like the Hispanic community brought over a lot of the facets, not only from their indigenous culture, but also from Spain, as far as the remembrance of All Saints Day and the Day of the Dead in general, the remembrance of the dead in France, in particular, would celebrate this day by specifically dressing up in your Sunday's best. And obviously, you look back at the way they dressed up back then, it would seem like they're wearing a weird costume compared to our fashion standards now. I don't know whether that's a plus or a minus, I'll let you be the judge. But the point being made is this, the French immigrants, when they began intermarrying with the locals in the United States, as it was going to be called, they also, again, brought their traditions with them. So with England and France bringing not only their political feuds, but their cultural customs, Catholic in origin, to the country, there was a lot of interesting things happening in the week leading into November. So what ultimately did this amount to? Well, you've got a lot of kids, specifically British kids, that are going around vandalizing things and wearing weird masks. You've got a bunch of French people going around wearing their costumes in remembrance of their ancestors. And as always, in the United States, what is our first and most prominent thought? How do we make money? Commercialize it. <laughs> How do we market this? We well, can sell those masks, make money. <laughs> and what was also interesting is that people who generally don't like having their houses vandalized would resort to bribery. They would say, hey, kids, I'll give you a treat if you don't mess with my house. That's why it was called trick, meaning I'm going to do something to your house or your lawn or treat. Which do you prefer? And note, historically, when was the first time in all of documented history that the term trick-or-treat was first mentioned? It wasn't in Britain. Mm -mm. It wasn't in France. It wasn't in anyone's underpants. It was in the United States in 1920. Very recent history. I know I'm... You know, we're talking about... You don't um, give me a bag of candy, I'm going to smash your mailbox. <laughs> and that was the whole point. So when we're talking about this issue, these traditions have definitely developed over time. But I'm squinting. I'd like to see that tradition come back, though, just kind of a force parents to get involved in, you know, giving more candy out. Because in the homes these Incentives, days, yeah. yeah, it's pretty... pretty uh, Low, uh, small pickings nowadays. Well, Half the streets are dark and no one's there. <laughs> well, I can't actually speak for myself. My roommate and I don't uh, tend to be in the house during those days. But that even aside, uh, there is still an incentive because you know the rule. If someone leaves out a bowl that only takes one, you don't just take all the candy in the bowl. You take the bowl. You even <laughs> should take the note to show it to your friends and say, isn't that sweet? But I'm, I'm not. I'm kidding. <laughs> We're not encouraging that kind of behavior out front. But the point being made is just that. When these pranksters would go around, these traditions were being upheld, people would host parties, they'd have costume contests, they'd want the kids to be busy on that night because that was the start of the leading up to Guy Fawkes Day shenanigans. When this ultimately became nuanced in its history, the irrelevant details as far as how was now replaced by the what and why. What we're doing? Well, that's obvious. Why we're doing it? Kind of lost track. And as always, nature pours a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Plenty of people will try to stir up false passion 
in those fairies of ignorance. That's not what we want for all of you. But taking a step back and asking, but isn't there some pagan aspect? You mentioned the Druids dressing up like animals. You mentioned them having this festival <coughs> for the dead. Well, again, as Adrian mentioned earlier, we don't have any record of Samhain having anything to do with the dead. It was definitely a superstitious mm -hmm. time in the onset of winter. Yeah. But here's what we actually know. I'm going to recite it all from memory about the Druids in their customs, their practices, and what they actually taught. Are you ready? I'm done. <laughs> we don't know anything because the only mention of the Druids as oak seers was because they were hunted down and exterminated during Caesar's Gaelic Wars. And what's interesting about this as well is that as far as Norse paganism is concerned, a ministry I'm trying to engage more in because it's coming back recently, is interestingly enough, non-existent as far as the oral traditions are concerned. They didn't write anything as far as their history, as far as their religion, as far as their culture, even their alphabet is concerned, until a man by the name of Snorri Sturluson, who was a Christian, not a pagan, decided to write down his culture from Iceland. And note, this was exchanging after many hands, originating what they believe, according to some of the sagas in Germany, Germania, as it was called then, all the way into Iceland mm. in the 11th century AD. Wow. So we know, as far as history is concerned, next to nothing about the Druids. And once mm. again, people will bank on ignorance. We don't want that to be said of you. So when it comes to Guy Fawkes Day, when it comes to the celebration of the Day of the Dead, that's a conglomeration of Catholic traditions, not pagan ones. The moving of the date to the start of November was not for pagan reasons. It was because right. of popularity reasons. Well, it was a response to whatever they did understand that time of year as a pagan time, not a day, but a pagan time of year. It was a response to it by trying to use it as an opportunity to evangelize to evangelize the community. So it was the Christian early church's way of taking All Saints Day, moving it to November 1st, and then calling the day before All Hallows' Eve, Halloween. It was a, a direct response or an attempt to say, hey, this is the perfect time of year to go out, as people are celebrating various reasons, to go out and evangelize them and tell them why we don't have to fear death or, or be... Um, depressed by the fact that seasons change and this is sort of the, a time of death. <laughs> We're recognizing that, that death is real and death is part of nature and we have overcome death in Christ. Yeah, so note these points. When we're talking about more information as opposed to less, that's where you want to come to conclusions off of. If we know less information, like with the Druids, like with ancient pagan customs, especially of the Celtic and Germanic variety, we know nothing. We're, we're Sergeant Schultz in this matter, for those of you who know the reference. But the point being made is just that. If we're talking to people about what we actually know something about, we're going to be in a better place than if we're told something by people that don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Look this information up. I hope not to be of the former category in all of your minds, but make sure that you always find yourself in the latter, that when we're talking about and when we're making decisions about things, it comes back to what we actually know. Now, this again, and as far as the execution is concerned, and then I'll hand it off to you, Adrian, about the issue of, so should Christians celebrate All Hallows' Eve as is um, I guess, expressed today. And the answer to that is, it's up to you personally. Because in the book of Romans, chapter 14, 
there's an interesting observation that Paul makes, and again, this was concerning an ancient controversy. In the early, early church, people thought they were more holy because they honored certain festivals in the Jewish religion. That's like O-T-O-G, right? The biblical stuff. And whether they honored Sabbaths or not. And what's interesting about this is that when he keeps in mind the mindset of, well, I obey Jewish customs or I don't, what makes me more or less right with God? And he says this in verse 5. Again, Romans 14 and verse 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be convinced in his own mind. Verse 6. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. He who gives and gives God thanks. He who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. Note the common feature. God should be the focus. If you can, on All Hallows' Eve, think about your relationship with God and redeem it, not as the day the devil is co-opted, but the day the Lord has made, then how you choose to rejoice and be glad in it, as the hymn goes, is going to be honored. If, on the other hand, you let the world set the tone for you and say, oh, it's all evil and pagan and satanic and so forth, utter nonsense when it actually comes to the information, but let's actually get down to the crux of the matter, pun intended. If you want to celebrate Halloween, you have that liberty. Just make sure you do so with God as the focus. If you don't choose to celebrate Halloween, you're not sinning. Understand that you should make that just as much God the focus. Don't denigrate a day above another. Elevate them or keep them all worth rejoicing for the same reason, that God's made it and then you have the opportunity to be thankful. But let's get down to the actual issue. What would make anything satanic? Well, it seems to me that anything that aids in the blinding of the non-believer or blinding the believer to fall into sin or to fall away from the faith. So if 2 Corinthians tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, and then anything that has to do with the activity of Satan is to point to Antichrist, meaning to dissuade people away from the genuine Christ, is satanic. So any film that uh, celebrates atheistic thinking or atheistic philosophy would be a satanic film. Any film that would uh, take us away from the fundamentals of Christian purity or Christian living would be in and of itself a form of satanic thinking. Anything that would create in us the opposite of the mind of Christ would be satanic. So, false and doctrine. That would be how I would, yeah, any kind of false teaching or um, uh, any kind of heretical uh, undermining of the fundamentals of the, Christ, of the Orthodox Christian faith. And again, you're or not... I should say Christian orthodoxy. Yeah, you're not uh, mm-hmm. making this up on the authority of your own opinion. If we go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's an interesting, I guess, overview that Paul gives us of the end times, but describing the working of Satan. Notice how it's described. This is 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Okay, what's that? With all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, notice the allowance of these satanic powers, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the girl floating on the bed and vomiting pea soup. Oh, gosh. (laughs) No, the lie. 
that's what makes something satanic, that they may be condemned who do not believe the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. Just like all of the stigma around Halloween is either based on a lack of information or deliberate misinformation, I know we hear that word a lot, but this is actually a case of that, we need to be careful because that's actually the satanic element to get our eyes off of Jesus and onto the enemy or onto anything else, just not Jesus. We counter false doctrine, as 2 Corinthians 10 says, by taking every thought captive and bringing it into obedience to Christ. Make sure that's your goal. Okay, people are taking it this way. A, that's not historically accurate. B, that's weird since Catholics mm -hmm. came up with this. And B, or C rather, three, take your pick. It all comes down to my attitude, my perception, how this is helping or harming my relationship with the Lord. There are things that by nature you should avoid. Candy and costumes aren't two of them. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe candy yeah. in some situations, but let's just make sure that we're being sensible about this. And, and remember, as as Paul told Timothy in Second uh, uh, Timothy chapter two, I think around yeah around verse twenty five here. <clears throat> I would encourage you to read this because from verse twenty two to the end of the chapter, it's really 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 helpful like encouragement but verse 25 opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that god will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will so the idea again here being that if something's genuinely satanic it's really just people being led astray from the truth when it comes to the halloween issue there probably is some caution I mean, if you're so, like, I was raised, speaking of the, the movie reference you made was a movie called The Exorcist. The original one. Not the, the original one, yeah. Or parodies. <laughs> I, <clears throat> my parents took me to see that in, apparently my mom said in theaters, and I was just a few or so years, maybe five years, I don't know what year it actually came out, but I was a child. And uh, I've seen, my son's two and a half, and if something scary appears on a screen, he has nightmares. So I can't imagine how seeing The Exorcist at older than him damaged me. <laughs> My father was a horror film fanatic, so I saw, if you were to list the top scariest, and most of you may not even know these, but if you were raised in a non-Christian home like I was, um, if you were to list the top 10 scariest movies ever of all time, I probably saw all of them before I was 10 years old. <laughs> so we, when we would go to the movie store, the video store, uh, we, we always were trained to just go straight to the horror film and pick something scary looking out. And that's how messed up we were. I think my, my first, one of my first Halloween costumes was being Freddy Krueger, where I uh, duct taped steak knives to a garden glove and ran around with a sweater and a goofy hat and oatmeal glued to my face. That's healthy. So yeah, so I would say that there is probably a warning in that our culture does seem to use Halloween as a time to celebrate death, and I don't mean death as in a remembrance, like Dia de los Muertos, but celebrate evil, murder, slashing. <laughs> and I'm not, not even God. talking about just the paranormal side of things, of beliefs in ghosts and witchcraft and, and demons and so on. I mean just the celebration of blood and gore and murder. So that's, that's where parents have to be wise and say, we don't want to glorify these things, and we certainly don't want to you know, look at the, these issues 
with any kind of, oh, it's not a big deal. It's just knives and blood and gore. So there is a caution. And, and I, I can't really add anything to what you've shared, but I would say that <clears throat> let's, let's use Halloween for its intended purposes. Why the church did what it did, why they responded to the people around them when they did, and how that has evolved to our modern day. Why not just use it as exactly as it was intended? Let's use it as a time to talk to our friends and family about the reality of death and decay and the reality of God stepping into human history and redeeming us from death and decay. And secondly, let's celebrate All Hallows' Eve, like the way it was meant to, by celebrating All Saints' Day. Let's remember the saints who have given their lives for the gospel. Let's look at their lives. Let's look at what how they lived and what they thought and what transformed them to take uh, the gospel to the very ends of the earth by giving their lives to do that. Let's Let's take that time to do that. Let's think about our ancestors who, if you came from a Christian family and you have ministers in your in your history to remember who they were and remember what they did, use it as an intentional holiday to remember the saints who have, who have uh, died for the faith or who have just passed on and were of the faith. Amen. And then the last thing is use the time to read a good book, you know, talk about speaking of <clears throat> our Christian faith, why not take your family aside and read a book like Pilgrim's Progress or... Fox's uh, Book the, of Martyrs. The Lion, yeah, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, or whatever whatever you want to make it, it. It's okay to take the time and celebrate it and use it as a time to proclaim the gospel to your friends, your family, those in your sphere of influence. Um, and it's okay to dress up and maybe have some fun with that. I would just say be careful not to glorify gore uh, because I grew up in that world and I, I enjoy scary movies because it's almost nostalgic. Looking back of how terrified I was of the dark, there were several years where I could not sleep with the light off because of that emotional and mental abuse. But now I kind of look at it as kind of silly and uh, I, I don't enjoy like the violent type things. But, you know, parent, when Hollywood tries to tell us what the afterlife or what the spiritual world might look like, it's just kind of like entertaining to giggle at it. But uh, I, that would be my only caution is to, to <clears throat> if you are going to be one of those parents who says, you know, we don't have a problem celebrating ha- Halloween. We want to be able to take our kids out trick-or-treating Define what it is, use it as an opportunity to educate your children about the truth of the gospel. What is the meaning of death? Why is death in the world? Why is it real? And that skeletons are, well, that's a human being who has passed away. You know, that's just the reality of of life. And and then use it as a time to remember uh, the saints who have just done amazing things in human history, even in our recent history. Uh, as as Americans and as Westerners. And why wait till November 1st if you want to elevate that day as your reading day yeah. or every day alike? Yeah. And again, you'll see me. Uh, Halloween will be a Monday this year. Uh, I'll be dressing up during the program like I did last time in my Hashira outfit. I'll, uh, I'll bring my katana if you want to see mm. it, and we'll have a fun time. But it's not going to mean anything because I'm literally just putting on a wig and wearing a, a heori. But if, on the other hand, yeah. someone's probably going to also be joining us, uh, Pastor Scott. He won't be dressing up, probably not just because he doesn't see it as worth the effort, but because he's just not that into it. That's allowed He should to. dress up like one of those real, real spooky priests with the, the black hat, you know, the traditional priestly suit. <laughs> uh, here's a suggestion to the elder if he's listening. You got a request, but... <laughs> I'll be, uh, I'll, I'll be do. I, I perform every year for a local... Uh, 
the part of someone who likes to throw Halloween parties. They love Halloween, but I'll be at Jim Click's house. I'm there every year doing magic for his guests and stuff. So it's kind of fun. If you have questions about that, let us know. But let us know if that also is clear about All Hallows Eve. And uh, feel free to reiterate for more details as the time dawns upon us. But with all that said, we want to give time to your questions. First one's from Yari. Uh, he wants to know in Daniel 7, 9, uh, where it talks about God having silver hair. Is it literal or symbolic? Well, let me read the passage, and there is a reason for it, but I'll uh, walk you through some interpretation techniques, and hopefully that'll help you long term too. This is Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. Daniel speaking, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. You're right in interpreting that's God, but let's hold our horses for a second. His garment was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. So white, not necessarily silver. And note, his throne was a fiery flame. That's a reference to something. Its wheels, a burning fire. That's a reference. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, and a thousand of thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and books were opened. I watched, and notice this is in uh, following through on this, because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn, that is the Antichrist, was speaking. And I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame, reference to the wrath of God. As for the rest of the beasts, that is, the kingdoms that precede the Antichrist, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now here's where it gets fun. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like a son of man, so someone who looks human, right, coming with the clouds of heaven. That's not human. More details on that in a minute. He came to the Ancient of Days, so he's distinct from the one sitting on the throne, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that's the Son of Man, the cloud rider, if you will, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, not the one that was taken away from those beasts, but the one that will be here forever, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, the passage goes on, verses 23 to the end of the chapter, literally explain to us what the significance of the horns and the beasts and all this other stuff, but it leaves the one on the throne kind of standing on its own as explaining itself. What was that in reference to? Well, firstly, the fire, the wheels, the aspects of the glory coming from this throne, those are all borderline copied and pasted from Ezekiel chapter 1. The one identified on the throne is the Lord. That's not controversial. But what's interesting is that after these end times events are all taking place, the one on the throne, we're not given description of his body, just of his head and hair. Now, whether you compare that to a human being or not, more on that tip in a second. But another comes to him who looks human, different from the one on the throne. He looks like a human, but he's doing something weird. He's riding on the clouds. Now, in ancient literature, the kind of language that Daniel was used to reading, responding to, rolling his eyes at, and being intrigued about, always used clouds to describe the realms of the gods. 
that uh, Baal in particular, the master, the one that was most popular in Israel before their captivity, Jezebel and all that other nonsense, he was literally called the cloud rider. And psalms were written by King David in particular, saying, no, the Lord is the one who rides on the mm -hmm. clouds. He's the one who walks on the heavens. So what's interesting about this is this human is given divine attributes. So by, just by saying riding on a cloud is saying, it, if you lived in that time, it'd be like saying, this is a divine being. Right. And note that point as well to Daniel, who was Jewish and a monotheist. He believed in one God. He's like, one on the throne, but this guy looks human, and he's doing something that the guy on the throne should be doing. What's going on here? Well, note these kind of traits, these kind of characteristics, and we keep reading. If you want to go, obviously it's a bit of a jump, but from the book of <laughs> Daniel to the book of Revelation, remember that description that was given of the one sitting on the throne, the one who had that power and who gave it to that cloud rider, if you will. Now notice, again, just like we read in Jeremiah's prophecy, does God share his glory with another? Is God going to give something that belongs only to him, ways that are described by him and about him to anyone other than him? The answer is obviously going to be no. What's interesting as well is there's a description given of Jesus, and we know it's Jesus, I'll explain why in a minute, but it was very fascinating when John the Apostle is on the island of Patmos, literally the Alcatraz of the Roman Empire. He turns to see someone who's speaking with him, he says, write this letter to these places, and he says in verse 12, he saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of them, one like the Son of Man. Again, that sounds familiar. What is the Son of Man like? Well, he's clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about his chest with a golden band. It's a mark of a priest and a king. His head and hair were white like wool. Does that sound familiar? Why is this figure that's speaking to John being described the way in Daniel's prophecy, the one sitting on the throne of heaven is? The Ezekiel 1 throne of heaven is. The Lord is. And it continues on to note this. John falls over, understandably, scared to death, literally. But he tells him in verse 17, Do not be afraid, quoting Isaiah 44, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives, was dead, hmm. and now am alive forevermore. Amen. Now, who is that describing? Obviously, the one who died and rose from the dead. So notice this structure that's being set up for us here. In Daniel, we're given a description, a feature of God, if you will. And you can go to the Proverbs and say, you know, white hair is the crown of glory for old men, mm -hmm. and wisdom is reflected in that. Eh, there's some merit to identifying symbols within Scripture. But note when those themes, symbol, literal, or not. I think it's symbolic, but note that's only because it is literally fulfilled as an identifier of Jesus as God. Why? Because what's applied to God is also applied to our Lord, and that's the point. So when you're wondering, is this symbolic or is this literal? Let's work in alternatives. Well, Sherlock Holmes it. In John chapter 4, what is God, as far as his substance concerned, described as? God is spirit. Spirit. He doesn't have a physical body. Let alone hair follicles? Probably not, if okay. you're spirit. <laughs> so he doesn't have to worry about hosting uh, the gray mane, if you will. But this picture was later used for Jesus, mm -hmm. and that's the intent. Now, if you want to take it further than that, I'd be cautious 
if something later in the Bible is reapplied or re-explained in another context, make sure that you note the two side by side. This is applied to God, Ezekiel 1 style. This is applied to Jesus, also referencing a lot of Old Testament things referring to God. And a lot of imagery that that those in the the ancients would have been familiar with, and so God uses those same types of terms to say, oh, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, because we kind of have similar things, and God typically communicates that way to us. If he were to reveal these things today, it would probably be very, very different. I mean, you wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, red and blue and Superman or something, <laughs> something that we could... Yeah, I get that. Yeah, and this is the whole point. When we're talking about these references to God, it's identifiers. Now, would it be possible for Jesus to have white hair? Absolutely, he's yeah, a he man. Is, he is corporeal. He does have a physical body. That's what the Incarnation is all about. A glorified body, but one right, nonetheless. Yeah. We can see Jesus with white hair because he yeah. has hair, but what's the significance of that? Explained in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. It's applied to God. So you're now, saying it is symbolic, but it's in a, in a way of an, as an identifier, not just meaning God's using anthropomorphic language what does that in, mean? A, in, the, in the actual... Well, um, giving something that's not human human-like features and attributes. So like God is hair. not a human being, meaning like you and I, where he has a physical body. Uh, we're not Mormons, <laughs> but no. uh, but we God will use in his... Vi- when he gives a prophet a vision, he'll use uh, anthropomorphic... Vi- he'll anthropomorphize himself, <laughs> I guess if that's the right term, yeah. uh, to, to bring clarity and understanding to the person he's revealing to. And, you know, this isn't... Uh, Daniel sitting down and coming, what's the best way I could write this down? This is a vision that God's giving. He's revealing it directly. So there's a huge difference between a a prophecy like this as opposed to an author who's inspired by the Holy Spirit using anthropomorphic language just for for the sake of illustration. Those are two different things. And we have to remember that God's actually showing someone something. So he's using pictures that that person will get. (laughs) Yeah, so would a spirit have hair? No, but Daniel describes it as having white hair. Why is that? Well, someone who was spirit and became man is described with white mm-hmm. hair. Okay, is that literal? It's not irrational to think so, right. but it's not because Jesus got older. It's because mm-hmm. that's a reference to something. So keep these things in mind. Remember, when there's quotations or references back or forward to them, that's intentional. And a good way to keep track of these, by the way, uh, biblehub.com is great about these because they have verse references on the mm-hmm. side. Yeah, they don't like catch it. everyone. There, there's ones I'm aware of that I look up and I'm like, oh, they missed it. But the point of emphasis is they'll keep track of those things for you and help with your homework. They won't do everything, obviously, but make sure that you keep those things in mind, Yari. That's the significance of that. God the Father doesn't have hair, but the description of him having white hair is later applied to Jesus, mm-hmm. and that's intentional. Now, as a quick rabbit trail, there are those in the cult, in various cults and other worldviews yeah. that, that will take the Bible and try to suggest, even within Christendom, if you can call word of faith Christianity by any stretch of the imagination, New. but there are those who suggest that God does exist in a physical state as a with a human body. I've heard uh, Word of Faith teachers teach this. I've heard, you know, obviously other religions teach this concept. And sometimes Christians will respond by quoting passages that specifically say that God is not a man. For example, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man, that he should lie, or... Um, 
or son of man that he should change his mind. It's describing the type of man he is, but that's saying he is not and cannot become human. No, it's saying he's not the type of being that would lie. And that's, of course, quoting Balaam in prophecy. And so that would be the response. And so here's my question for you, is that whenever I see these passages, it seems to be indicating that God is not like a human being in behavior. God's not a man that he would behave like that. So you can't use as an argument that God is not a man. What would you say is a strong biblical case to, su- to support the idea that God is not a man, other than the one passage that you referenced that God is spirit, but how would you best argue against the idea that God is just a, a glorified human being uh, kind of idea? Well, I guess it would depend who I was talking to. If I was talking to a Muslim who would make the point of emphasis that God just can't interact with his creation that way, and if you say that God can enter into his creation, I'd apply their standards to the Quran. Let's say I just got done listening to uh, Kenneth Copeland. And okay. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> and we're, we're in that I'm a, realm. I'm a believer thinking, well, yeah, God, you know, he's a man and has a body, and, you know, he measured the heavens with a nine-inch span, according to them, and and so I have mine's, you know, eight and three quarters, so I'm not as big as God is, but still, uh, quoting <laughs> lightly, lightheartedly, one of those quotations from, uh, if you've ever wanted to listen to some of the, the teachings, there's plenty out there. In fact, uh, um Benny Hinn's uh, nephew uh, serves as a pastor up in Gilbert, and has uh, he's got a ton of YouTube videos explaining how, what he was thinking at the time, what they believed, and what he abandoned. Uh, if you ever wanted to do a little case study on Word of Faith theology, look up uh, Benny Hinn's nephew. I can't remember his first name, but he's serving in Gilbert and is a pastor of a you know evangelical church. Kind of neat. Well, if I was Responding to someone who is coming from that background, my call would be for consistency until we end up being absurd, and hopefully they'll notice before I do. Uh, Obviously, if we're going to, again, impose anthropomorphism, giving something not human, human traits, and saying that's an argument for him being human, okay, well, we have passages, for instance, like in Psalm 91 and verse 4, where it notes that God will cover you in his wings, and under his feathers you may have refuge. So now God's a chicken. Jesus, in his addressing to the disciples in John chapter 5, or 15, rather, begins the conversation by saying, I am the vine, the true. Now he's a fruit. Yeah. You know, I am, I am the door, the door. Uh, right, yeah. knob, hinges, you know, the whole nine yeah. yards. Obviously, they're going to catch on to that. That's how I would mm. give them the chance to think this through for themselves. So your approach would be not to have a hook, line, and slam-dunk passage that says God does not have a corporeal body, but rather explain how proper biblical hermeneutics is applied when the Bible uses the anthropomorphic language and... Other language, like what we just like we just quoted about God having feathers and wings and so covering on, covering us like a mother hen. So the showing point that, made is that that how if you take that approach across the board, you're going to end up, as you guys like to say often, if the plain sense makes sense, then seek no other sense; otherwise, make nonsense or you believe, believe in non- nonsense. Believe in yeah. nonsense, yeah. Uh, and that applies, I think. So thanks, Sean. I didn't mean to take you on a rabbit trail. I know there's a lot of questions here, but... <clears throat> we'll uh, take it as they come. A question from Andre, who wants to know, in Isaiah 66 and verse 22, saying, All people will worship God on the Hebrew Sabbath day throughout all eternity as a way of general worship from the other days, like some people use Sunday today. 
Um, is that what it's saying? Okay, well, let's go to the passage, note the application, and I guess uh, practice what we just finished preaching as far as consistency is concerned. Isaiah 66, and again, for those of you who are curious at the frequency of sixes, don't worry, it stops there. But verse 22 is a basically this is the conclusion to the whole book, but it says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, so this is obviously God speaking, shall remain before me, says the Lord, no guess there, so shall your descendants and your name remain. Now, who's he addressing? We'll go to verse 21. I will take, uh, take some of them for priests and Levites. So this is referencing the children of Israel. It goes on to say, and it shall come to pass in verse 23, that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. They shall go forth and look upon the corpses of men who transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, their fire is not quenched, Jesus quoted that, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So just taking this at face value, what's being described, that you'll only worship me on Sabbath and new moon days? No, it says from one to another. Who's the... Well, let, let's ask the... That means year-round... Yeah, let's, let's ask the audience. They were Jews, so did they know what a Sabbath and a new moon was? It was times for worship, yes. But going from one to the other, what's he doing as far as the English language is concerned? He's setting up time frames. From one Saturday <laughs> to the other, you'll be worshiping mm -hmm. before me. It's not saying that, okay, everyone, it's Saturday, time to recognize me for who I am. That's what worship means. No, it's saying... You guys will be doing this all the time, and at the same time, you'll notice those who rejected me, and you'll be like, I'm glad I'm not that, because that's icky. The point being made, though, is just that, uh, It's Andrew. like when the Bible says he throws our sins as far as the east is from the west. That means as far as humanly possible. Yeah, it's not uh, measuring the circumference of the earth and then equating that to the number of <laughs> sins that you've committed and saying, yeah. oh no, I've crossed three miles because I lied. No, that's, that's not the point. He's using this language with an audience in mind intended for the children of Israel who knew these things, but saying what? Not every Sabbath, every new moon, from one Sabbath to the other, you'll be worshiping before me. And also note, from one Sabbath to another, they'll be separated from me. That means people will never stop coming to him to worship him, yeah. to worship the Lord. Yeah, and it's not going to be, uh, again, limited to days, and it also won't be something we'll be forced into. We'll want to do it because we'll be seeing someone uh, worth that kind of effort and investment. Let us know if that's clear, Andre. I know a lot of people make a lot of hubbaloo about the Sabbath, but that would not be a proof text for them. Um, it kind of reminds me of that Philippians passage 2.10, that uh, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so that's kind of saying the same. I think that's what Isaiah is saying, something similar, that everybody's going to bow the knee. Everyone's going to know the truth. Um, and they're gonna, And what's really interesting about that is that, that they will look upon the bodies of those who rebelled. So clearly we're looking at a post-tribulation uh, Armageddon moment uh, once the new creation or the new heavens and the new earth are made, you think? Is that about the right timeline? Yeah, yeah that's... I make a new heavens and a new earth. That would put us in the mm -hmm. Revelation 21 passage, post-millennium yeah. and everything. Um, here's a question from Ban, who wants to know our thought on the walk to Emmaus. Uh, one way of putting it, uh, the road to Emmaus is what it's sometimes called. Uh, it was a situation at the end of the Gospel of Luke. I'll turn to the passage so you guys can follow along. But just to be brief as far as our thoughts, obviously 
who better to give the eloquence than the Holy Spirit. But Luke 24, verses 13 through 27 is what accounts all of that. Now, what's interesting, Emmaus, the city outside of Jerusalem that they were traveling to, to get out of Dodge, the whole situation was one of the eyewitness encounters with Jesus after his publicly verifiable execution. So my first thought would be this is very important historical data as far as whether or not the resurrection is historically valid. It's coming from people, not who are looking for Jesus, but literally running away from the spot that they saw him die. The second interesting aspect, and this is just as a historian, but as a pastor, is that it says in verse 25, O foolish ones, this is speaking to the disciples, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, referencing the Old Testament. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. My second thought would be, man, I wish that we had that in writing. It would make sermons about the deity of Christ so much easier because Jesus would have gone through the Old Testament and said, that's about me, that's about me, that's about me. And uh, also the Orthodox Jewish community would have a lot less to live with. But the point being made, though, is that uh, my second thought, not just as a historical buff, but also as a pastor, I wish we had more information, but we're told, obviously, that Jesus knew what he was talking about. That's relevant. Um, I'll leave the third thought to you, and we can move on, but any other thoughts on the road to Emmaus? I would have liked to have known some of those other things that he talked about, <laughs> where he opened their eyes at the scriptures and explained to them everything. All right, so pastor or not, we wish more information was given, but what was mm -hmm. given was intended. So let us know if that answers mm -hmm. your question, Ben. Isaiah wants to know, who are the ones who persecuted John on the island of Patmos? That was the Roman emperor Domitian, I believe. I'll verify that in a moment, but um, I always get Domitian and Diocletian confused because the sentence structure of Roman names and stuff. I think Domitian, though. Uh, what was important to note is that he was the last of the 12 apostles who had been every one of the other eyewitnesses had been hunted down and murdered. He was the one who lived basically to old age, but it was a lot of mileage. They tried to kill him by dunking him in a vat of boiling oil. Now, you know the law, never cook bacon with your shirt off. Imagine that in a jacuzzi, and he survived. They didn't know what to do with him, so they threw him on Patmos. It was the Roman government at the time. And that's how people date Book of Revelation 295 AD is because of Emperor Domitian. And it is Domitian? It is, yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. Of, uh, his, of his, the end of his reign and so on. All right, uh, let us know if that's clear, Isaiah. Uh, Follow-up, uh, was it the prisoners on the island, since it was like Alcatraz? No, um, it was the government that put him there. As far as the persecution he was experiencing, that was a result of his testimony. You can read that in Revelation 1. Um, so yeah, uh, continuing on. <laughs> I'll be keeping an eye out for your questions as they come. Uh, we've still got a few more minutes, and we don't want to waste said time. <laughs> got a request for Pastor Scott to dress up as Patrick Starr. That's mm -hmm. a little uh, shout-out to our mascot here, placeholder in case I'm all alone. But um, we've got three and a half minutes. Is there anything you want to clarify, Adrian, as far as, again, the nature of the supernatural and what you do? Well, let's see here. I, I, I always like, well, when we talk about Satan and deception and the activity of Satan, uh, I, I can't but really appreciate when 
the rest of you take the time here on the program to talk about critical thinking skills and using reason and being logical. And and I, I think that we, as believers, because we've sort of created a, a somewhat anti-intellectual environment within Western evangelical Christendom, I always appreciate when people say, no, that's not actually God's, and he wants us to use our our, our spirit, our, our souls, and our minds. We are to love God with all our hearts, minds, soul, and strength, and so on. And so I always like to appreciate that because I, in one of my favorite passages, sort of one of my life verses, is Second Corinthians 10. He says, for we do not fight or war as the world does. He says, for our weapons that we have at our disposal, and I'm paraphrasing here, is has the power to demolish fortresses, or in some translations, says strongholds. And he says, for we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. And I think when he says we, he means the body of Christ. That means believers, not apostles, not just pastors and preachers, but we as the body of Christ, holy. And so I, I want to encourage and, and remember that when Satan is operating, he is trying to do the opposite. He's tr- he's the one that's instilling those arguments. Every idol is just a demon behind it. When an, an idol is a lie, and so when Satan or his uh, the the fallen angelic realms speak, they lie. And when they uh, do activity, that's all in a, the effort is to deceive and mislead. And so the opposite of that is to shed light and proclaim the truth. And so I want to just sort of emphasize that the battle we have is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, a battle of ideas. And that's always answered with the truth, and hopefully that's been what's communicated here today. Thank you all for joining us. The music's going to come on in about 12 seconds, so we won't uh, jump into another question. But we look forward to receiving yours. Remember, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. YouTube is a reason for hope. But our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, is what's going to be key. And and be sure to check out the Android and Apple iOS. Uh, app stores for the Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson app. They'll have the same links as well. God bless you, and we'll see you all again next time. Till then, may the word of the Lord be in you, and you in the word of the Lord. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.